Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're in now the extended phase of Guy Talk. We've got another 30 minutes with most of the panel. Justin Jepson has dropped off. He has uh, some mission he's got to go Typical. attend to. Typical, Typical yeah. Justin. So he comes and goes as he pleases. But I've got uh, pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner for a little bit. So we're excited that uh, we've got most of the guys here. And if you have a question, Keep them coming, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. Uh, Bill, I was confronted today about a lady talking about St. Anthony helping her find her glasses. But I told her that we do not have to go through anyone like that because of Jesus when the veil was torn and Jesus is our high priest. I also shared about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Is there anything else I could have said? My first thought is, did find your, Did you find your glasses? <laughs> <laughs> Well, isn't the rule if you call on me last that I get to call on somebody? Yeah, yeah right like, okay, Tom Brock, that's an awesome question for you. <laughs> well, you know, I I, uh, I did a TV show where I said, we don't pray to the saints, we don't pray to angels, we just pray to God. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to pray to angels or saints. And and then a guy at a at Bible Formation Thrift Store came up and said, Tom, I saw that show, and he, he took this paper out of his old weathered little piece of paper uh, and he says i've been praying this my whole life and it said uh, uh dear archangel michael protect me through the night and protect me from all harm and he said so is it wrong to pray to the archangel michael and i i said well i would tweak it and i would say dear god the father protect me through the night and protect me from all harm because it i don't know anywhere in the bible where somebody prays to a saint who has died or to an angel. So I would just not not seek St. Anthony for your glasses. I'd seek the Lord. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And what you want to do is you want to lovingly challenge people to think through what they're doing. Too often people say things like that, and it's easy to get defensive. It's easy to come back and to say, that's ridiculous. You know, this is what the Bible says. And I used to do that quite regularly. <laughs> it took me a while of getting knocked around to realize what I need to do. What I've learned to do, though, is somebody says that to me, and I will immediately try to come back to them and say, hey, I'm glad you got your glasses, but you know, Jesus told me there's a better way to do this. And if you want to know that better way, I'd be glad to tell you. And then let them ask the question, well, what better way? I've never had an argument from that point on, but it's stepping into where they're at, but not making them feel foolish at the same time. There are some mainline denominations that talk about intercessors. And like the saints are all intercessors, they're going and they're praying on your behalf. And they get conditioned to believe that. Right. And, you know, and here's the thing. Maybe they are. Do the saints in heaven pray for us down on earth? Maybe. But we don't know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, and uh, it's, it's just uh, can the saints in heaven see us down here on earth? We don't know. So I, I think to pray to Mary or to pray to St. Uh, Anthony, it's just not done in the New Testament. Prayers are always to God, 
Mm-hmm. Here's another question just came in. What does it mean to be in Christ? Seems like a softball question. <laughs> Theology boy? <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's that, Bill? Oh, brother. That's Catholic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, the, the first passage that comes to mind. And to think you could have left 10 minutes ago. Oh, gosh, I know. I'm greatly regretting my decision at this moment. Uh, well, I think there's the beautiful passage about our, hit, uh, our lives are hid with God in Christ. And, and I think there's this idea of the, of the mysterious, the very real union that even on a very simplistic level, when we ask Jesus into our heart, and, and we sometimes will, will say that what we're actually asking for is that within the very seat of myself, where my attitudes and dispositions and passions, my character, all of what drives me as a human being, the controlling mechanism of my life, to be in Christ or is the idea that we are living, I, I think it was Dallas really who said it, this mysterious, the very real partnership with a very living God who um, we are co-conspirators with then in this life. And, and that, uh, that kind of life is only available for those who have yielded their lives to Christ. And so we find our actual life in and with Christ as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. All right. You have a little bit, a few more minutes, Peter? Depends on the next question. Well, this, this, <laughs> ne- this next one's got a multi-layered uh, question, so I'll, I'll just throw it out, and wh- whoever can talk about it, great. This is an interesting question. Uh, there's a lot of talk and use of the word conviction or convicted by the Holy Spirit in church circles, but when I did an in-depth study about this, I find the word used once in the book of John where he mentions the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. I don't see anywhere else in the New Testament where, or in Paul's letters, that say the Holy Spirit convicts a true believer. Rather, with regards to the true believer, he is said to be our helper, our comforter, our guide. Doesn't the word convict mean guilty? What are your thoughts on this? See, you wish you would have left, right, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I'm calling from my phone right now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Parrish, that seems great. You know, within your yes. Well, Tom Parrish, if if you think of it, if you use the word convict in the sense of something wrong, like you're being convicted of something, you know, like in a court, that's one thing. But when you talk about convict here, we're really talking about the Holy Spirit's role is to bring back to our remembrance everything Jesus said. Scriptures talk about that. It is to bring to our mind the Scriptures. It is to bring to our mind the will of God the Father. And so in that sense, I don't see a problem with being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Now, the person who wrote in is right. It's only used one time in that way, and that's why I try not to make a doctrine out of it or try to do insist on that. But we all need some way to talk about how we come under conviction or how the Lord changes our mind or how the Lord gives us a new attitude. Most of us don't really have a good theology for doing that. And I'm not sure most pastors have done a good job teaching that. And that's not putting anybody down. We just don't have good language for this. Yeah, I think, uh, Parrish, you're spot on on that. And I think the listeners, too, quite frankly, that there is this role of conviction, this, uh, the, uh, of a reproof of the principalities and powers in this world in this present darkness in which we live. But there is the role of the Spirit simultaneously that leads believers into all truth, right? Which right. is the idea of freedom from the deceit in which we live in ourselves and in the relationships around us. And we begin to live within the easy yoke or the easy freedom of truth. The Spirit does guide us and lead us into what is true within the kingdom. As we read the scriptures, as we interact with one another, the Spirit does have that capacity. So conviction is absolutely guilty. And and I think the listener has a pretty fair point Mm -hmm. to say maybe we need to be careful with that kind of language within the church in terms of how we use the role of the Spirit. I agree with that. Yeah. Because, Because John says that when the Spirit, well, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of the truth. 
I don't think that means he doesn't also do that for Christians. Um, I, I think that would be over-interpreting that verse. So I do think the Holy Spirit convicts us, not in the sense that he condemns us, but he convicts us. He shows us our, our sin. And on the other hand, we've got to maintain your conscience and the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. You can be convicted about, you know, some people feel guilty brushing their teeth. I mean, there are some people who are very guilt-ridden, they've got a lot of guilt, and it's not from the Holy Spirit, which is why we need to be in, in, in Scripture and a good church to sort out, okay, what guilt is from God and what guilt is just from me or the way I was raised? Because mm-hmm. I do think it's possible to convict yourself for all kinds of things that the Holy Spirit is not doing that convicting. True. All right. I think we'll take a little bit of an early break. I will let Dr. Peter Kapsner. I will dismiss you, Peter. Oh, boy. Thank you for your Goodbye, graciousness. Theology, yes, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hashtag that one. Yeah. So uh, two down, two left. Uh, when we come back, we'll have the pastor, Tom and Tom, available. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Guide Talk. We're down to Pastors Tom and Tom. I'm very glad you guys are stuck with me. You guys always <laughs> go the extra mile. I appreciate uh, we you love both. It. I appreciate you both. Uh, talking about being in Christ, a question just came in. Please explain Romans 8.1. Does this require us to repent first? I'll read Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. That's also verse 2. So, question is, please explain Romans 8.1, does this require us to repent first? Well, I don't know about the word first, but I, I would say this. Yes, you do have to repent. Yes, you do have to believe. Both of those things are works of the Holy Spirit done within us. You know, uh, when the Jews uh, saw, the Jewish Christians saw the Gentiles got saved, they said, quote, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to faith. And so even repentance, if you turn from your sin and believe in Christ, if you do that, ultimately that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. So there's no condemnation. You have to repent before that happens or after that happens. I don't know, but repentance is, is a work of the Holy Spirit, just like faith is in our hearts. I think one of the things we have to be careful of is taking these statements from the New Testament in isolation from what the rest of the Scripture is saying. What I mean by that is this. Paul was writing to specific Christians under specific circumstances. I'm sure he had a list of questions he was trying to answer. And I'm sure there were Christians who were saying, hey, even though you've repented and received Jesus into your, your life, you know, you're not out of condemnation yet. And Paul is trying to respond to that and say, wait a minute, wait, wait. What Jesus does is complete. You don't need to add to it. Just simply walk in it and give him praise and thanks. So... Uh, I don't think we need to to push that too far one way or the other, because once we're in Jesus, 
Jesus says condemnation is past. We pass from death to life. The moment you believe, and I think that's important to understand. I was just reading through First and Second Corinthians with my wife, and I felt bad for Paul because you can tell he's getting hit by questions and criticism constantly in those two books of the Bible, and he's answering questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, too, when Paul writes Timothy, he says, Timothy, correct your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them uh, to repent yeah. uh, from their error and be set free from the devil. So, you know, yeah, yeah you know, I, you don't want to go— you don't want to think of yourself as the one has to, having to maintain your salvation. It does say work out your own salvation, but then it adds, for God is at work in you, both the will and the please for his good pleasure. So we, we lean on the Lord to keep us saved, not on ourselves. Another comment came in regarding the prayers of the saints in Revelations 8. They go up with the incense in the presence of God. I think it's unlikely the saints in heaven have ceased praying and appealing to the Lord. They are cleansed from any form of unrighteousness, and the love and motives of their prayers are pure in harmony with the beautiful will of God. Comment from a listener named Spence. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good understanding of what that verse is talking about. Now, specifically, do they know the troubles you're having, Bill, or I'm having at this moment and praying about that? Scripture never says. But what they're doing is they're praying in harmony with the will of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm Mm-hmm. I just get grieved when someone spends a lot of time praying to a saint and less time talking to God. Mm-hmm. That just, I, I think that's grievous. Yeah. I agree. Another listener asked about the, the mother of Jesus, Mary, and a friend of uh, his prays to her and insists that she is sinless. How do I respond? <laughs> Even well, if you... That- Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Tom. Even if you read the Jerusalem Bible, which is the traditional Roman Catholic Bible, you still got to depend on holy tradition. And that's the difference. Protestants said, no, we don't rely on holy tradition to create theology. We require the Word of God, and that's what Luther said. Roman Catholics, though, with holy tradition, can add that in about her being sinless. Whether or not that's accurate, I don't know. The Scripture doesn't really talk about it. I don't think it's accurate to say Mary is sinless. And I know the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was conceived without sin, but she calls God her Savior. Yeah. <laughs> if she's not a sinner, why does she need a Savior? Good you know? point. So I, I just, uh, and, and, you know, I, I can remember even at age 12, the confirmation Lutheran confirmation pastor saying, you know, Catholics teach that Mary had to be pure and sinless, or she could not give birth to a sinless Jesus Christ. And my Lutheran pastor said, well, okay, let's let's follow that logic. Okay, if Mary has to be uh, sinless, then her mother, Mary's mother, to give birth to a sinless Mary had to be perfect. You go all the way back to Eve, and you know that doesn't work. So, How tall were you when you were 12, Tom? Uh, normal, but when I was 14, <laughs> I was about the tallest kid in school. Yeah. What are you, yeah. how tall are you, about 6'3"? No, 6'2". Six 6'2"? Foot two. Six foot two. But do, do, blue. do you say you're six foot three on your license? No, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I always figure guys fudge a little extra inch here. Why not? Why not? Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Here's a question. Are we supposed to feel something when we repent? Not necessarily. We should feel sorrow over our sin, but. Again, if you look at your belly button too much, <laughs> you know, you can go nuts. You can go nuts. Have I truly repented? You know, do I truly believe? Well, you know, the problem with those, 
you know, nobody ever perfectly repents or perfectly believes. So you just got to not be too introspective on, on things like that. Yeah, I'm always cautious about my feelings because they can go up and down. What I can rely on is the Word of God. And it tells me that when I repent, I'm for, for you know, in Jesus' name, I'm forgiven. And that's what I'm really banking on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? and I, if I can correct myself, Paul does say, you know, test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. So that that's okay to do, but just you don't want to get neurotic about it. All right, here's an interesting question. My brother, who has passed on, was really good at encouraging people and building up other people. I know the Bible says we're to do this, but I don't really have any idea how to do this without coming across as phony or manipulative. How would Jesus have me do this in a genuine manner? Okay, Tom. Tom Brock, you go first. Well, I will tell you, you know, when I, I was at Hope Lutheran Church for 29 years, the first eight years I was the associate pastor. When I became the senior pastor, I learned pretty quickly, I've got to compliment my staff. And when I see see them doing something good, to go out of my way and saying, good job on that one or whatever. Because I, I, my role changed. And when I went from being the associate pastor, being the senior pastor, you know, the staff needs to be supported and know that that they're doing a good job. And I think that's just generally true for everybody in life. Mom and dad, make sure you encourage your kids. Don't just criticize them all the time. For every one time you criticize them, compliment them twice. And I, and yeah, you don't want to be phony about it, but, you know, just genuinely thank people when they do something good. I was just in Texas with my three grandsons, and my oldest uh, grandson is Mark. He's 17, well, soon to be 17. And I helped him kick the football. We did some things together. We talked a lot. But he said something to me that really caught me off guard. He said, you know, Grandpa, you're always encouraging me. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? How do I encourage you? And he said, you pay attention to me. And I think that's the biggest problem. Most of us are not good encouragers because we don't take the time to pay attention. And I, I've, I've been looking him in the eye all his life, and I will compliment him where I can. But I will pay attention to what he's doing, and I will do it with him. I mean, I had to go out with my bad feet to a football field and kick a football. I wasn't crazy about that, but it's what he wanted to do, and it's a memory for us, and uh, he really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. All right, here's another question. What role does the law play in the life of the believer? Go ahead, Tom. Well, no, you go, Tom, and then I'll go. Well, Jesus nailed down the law to two commandments, the big ones. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and body. Love your neighbor as yourself. What the law does now is it gives us a direction. It doesn't any longer have power over us to condemn us because Jesus was condemned by the law and by the sin of us to set us free. So now everything I do, and this for me is the big one, instead of talking about the law, there's only one word I use to talk about my Christian walk. That is the word thankfulness. Everything I do is out of thankfulness for what Jesus has already done for me. And there's where the power I found is, and that's the, the best way to live. And there are th- what there are what's called the three uses of the law, God's yep. law. One is to keep order in the universe. Don't kill, don't steal. So one use of God's law is for absolutely everybody. He's written it on our hearts, whether you're a believer or not. Right. Uh, the law keeps order and morality in the universe. 
second use of the law is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ for salvation. So that when you go, you know, we break the Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed, we feel guilty. That's the law driving us to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the third use of the law, now, I'm, this is Lutheran theology you're getting. Some Lutherans don't like the third use of the law, but I think it's okay. The third use of the law is once you are saved, it's your guide in life to how God would have you live. Some people think, look, if the second use of the law does its work, you don't need the third use of the law. But I, I so there's three, I think. All right, here's another question. What's a good response to someone such as a Mormon who cannot grasp that Jesus and God the Father are one? Mm-hmm. You know, Mormons believe in, in many gods. You can become a god and get your own planet to worship you. They believe God the Father didn't used to be God. He was a man on another planet who attained Godhood. And so we are worshiping God the Father, who didn't used to be God. He became God. And the best verse we can quote to the Mormons at the door is from Psalms, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. You've always been God. He didn't become God. And so that's a verse, because the Mormons say they believe in the Bible. So I would put before them, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I like that, and it makes sense. And the Mormons that I've had the chance to interact with, I was surprised to discover how uncertain they are of eternity. And uncertain they are, because they have no finite understanding of a Savior, as we do in Jesus, being God the Son. And I remember saying to one of them, uh, literally, uh, I know my sins are forgiven. I know Jesus loves me. I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. I have peace in my heart, and I've learned to forgive others. What have you got that's better? Yep, and to piggyback on that, Tom, so two Mormons showed up at my door years ago. We we talked for, I don't know, maybe three hours, and I, I started saying, okay, share the gospel <laughs> with me, what you believe. And their gospel was, there are three heavens. If you're a Mormon, a good Mormon, you go to heaven number one. If you're just a normal human, you go to heaven number two. And then uh, for the other people, they go to heaven number three. And I listened. I was very polite. And I said, if you're going door-to-door sharing that, you're depressing people. And they said, well, why is that? I said, I'm not good enough to go to heaven number three, much less heaven number one. My only hope for salvation is that Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. At which point they said, well, we we believe that too. I said, wait a minute. You just shared with me what you call the gospel of salvation. You didn't mention Jesus Christ. It was all on you being good enough to get to heaven number one, two, or three. So, you know, it's a whole different religion. People think it's Christianity. It is not. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you so much for hanging in there with me. Thank you, Bill. That wraps up Guy Talk. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, Daryl B. Harrison, Dean of Social Media at Grace to You in Southern Cal, is going to be my guest. Cannot wait. Be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. 
It is a beautiful spring day, and Daryl B. Harrison is my guest, so things are going pretty good for me today. He uh, is the Dean of Social Media at Grace to You, which is the Bible teaching ministry of John MacArthur, and he has uh, got an amazing podcast called Just Thinking. It's one of the top-ranked Christian podcasts in America, and it's got a it's gazillion downloads. And he does that with um, uh, his friend um, Virgil, Virgil Walker, who's also an amazing um, pastor as well. But Daryl uh, graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary, and he is uh, with me today. Daryl, welcome. Bill Arnold. Oh. It's been a while, my friend. How it, are you doing? It's been, it's been a while. Too long for me. I've been good, but I have missed you, just so you know. Same here, brother. It's good to be back. Good. Now, we've got a topic today to talk about that I can't think of anyone I want to have discussed more than you, and that's something that you addressed on your blog, and it's the idea of equity versus equality. Right. Yeah. Would you talk to us about that? Yeah. So those are two terms uh, that are being used in very confusing ways, especially as they are being entertained by the church. Uh, it's it's kind of like the, the two terms, uh, judging versus condemnation, mm-hmm. out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. There's a distinction that needs to be made here between equality, what equality is, and what equity is. And as I try to do uh, in my blog as well as on the podcast, I try to take our, our, my readers, my listeners, and in this case your listeners, Bill, back to Scripture for definitions of these terms. And I think um, a, a good biblical example of the distinction between equity and equality is found in 1 Kings chapter 3. Of course, that's the Old Testament. But 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 27, where we have the account of King Solomon uh, being approached by two women uh, who are urging him to settle a dispute between the two of them, uh, which was based in each of them declaring that a a baby belonged to them. So those of your listeners who are familiar with that account will understand that what's at stake here is uh, two women who both are arguing that the other woman, both of whom had newborn babies, but that the other woman slept on her baby by accident, and that baby died as a result of that. But there's one baby who's left alive, but they're both claiming that the baby belongs to them. So King Solomon is in somewhat of an uh, 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 unusual position here. But what's, what's interesting about this and where equality and equity come into play is that Solomon did not show favoritism to either woman. He did not show partiality to either woman. Uh, his objective, and he understood what his respons- responsibility was, it was to get at the truth, the objective truth, so that he could discern and determine who was telling the truth and thus make the right, or dare I say righteous, decision in this case, which he did. So if you read that account, and you understand that um, Solomon, in order to resolve the situation, even threatened to cut the baby in half and just give half of a dead baby to each woman and settle the issue that way. But of course, that was to test the uh, veracity, the sincerity, the truthfulness of the two accounts that he heard. So he ended up ruling rightly. Now, 
where equity and equality come in here. Equity, by biblical definition, is the impartial application of God's objective law to every person, regardless of outcome. Say that again, Daryl. That's so important. Equity is the impartial application of God's law, mm-hmm. God's ob- objective law. By objective, I mean the law is derived from God. The precept is derived from someone outside of ourselves, okay, Re- without regard to outcome. That's what equity is, the impartial application of God's law to every person without regard to the outcome. Equality, on the other hand, is outcomes-based, okay? Equality is outcomes-based, is outcomes-focused without respect for what the truth is, okay? So what you have here in First Kings 3, you have King Solomon, whose responsibility is to rule with equity, regardless of outcome, and that's what he did. He judged rightly. He applied God's objective principles and precepts to this situation. He judged rightly by awarded, by de- deciding that the baby belonged to its rightful mother, which meant that one of those two women was going to go home without a baby. So the outcome was that one one of the women who protested before the king went home without a baby. So the person who wants to argue from the equality standpoint will say, well, well, that's not fair. Well, okay, if you want it fair, Solomon offered to cut the baby in half. Now, that's equality, because each woman would have gone home with half a dead baby. That's equality. But equity is more important. Matter of fact, uh, John Calvin, the French reformer, said that equity must be the goal, the rule, and the finality of all laws, not outcomes. So so this is very important for your listeners to understand, especially if they're believers. I want to repeat again. Equity is the impartial application of God's objective law, precepts, principles to every image bearer of God without regard to partiality or outcome. Equality seeks an outcome-based solution, which involves partiality. When you really think about it, you cannot achieve equality without imploring partiality at the same time. You're going to discriminate in in your attempts to uh, make everything equal for, for everybody. You cannot avoid being partial, discriminatory towards one person or one group as you attempt to give deference to another person or another group. And that's sin. Scripture is clear that God is a God who shows no partiality. I mean, none. Even in the Old uh, Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, God commands his people. He says, you shall show no partiality to the poor nor to the great. So it's a sin to even show partiality to the poor. So God is so pure in his judgments. He's so righteous. He's so holy by nature that he doesn't show partiality even with regard to our situations and circumstances. There is no bias uh, where God is concerned. And we have to operate in that same way as imitators of God here in the world. So, Daryl, in your blog, you say— regarding equity, the word carries with it the concept of judging with a straight line, one that is devoid of ethical or moral defects, irregularities, or deformities, such as partiality, prejudice, or bias. Right. That term in the scripture, the term equity, 
is an architectural term, uh, which is where you get the metaphor, the wordplay there of judging with a straight line. No one who is constructing a fixture of any kind would consider continuing constructing that, that fixture, that building, that structure, if there aren't straight lines, if the lines aren't pure, if the lines aren't just. So this principle applies to us in the church today as well. We are to judge with a straight line. We are to judge without defect, without bias, without partiality. Uh, this is so key here with, with regard to the milieu that we find ourselves in uh, today with situations involving uh, the police uh, and, and, and citizens and uh, uh, what seems to be uh, increasing uh, situations of, uh, of uh, violence involving the two. Um, but, but as Christians, as believers, we must not allow our feelings, our personal perspective, our emotions to cloud our judgment in situations uh, such as what we may see on social media or on the news. Uh, we are to, uh, as, as John uh, says in John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus himself commands us, do not judge with uh, do not judge on outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We're to judge with righteous judgment, not on the basis of what we see. We are to go to the Word of God and leverage God's attitude, leverage God's mindset, God's approach to judging righteously, and that means without showing partiality to anyone. So, Daryl, are there Christians today trending towards this idea of justice, which is more of a gospel of equality instead of equity? Yes. Short answer, yes. Uh, and I think th- your, your question, Bill, brings up an incredibly important point. I just want to challenge your listeners that when you're hearing words like justice, equity, and equality, you must be careful of the context in which those terms are being used. Please be careful of the language, because you've got professing believers in the church today who are using those same terms, which which on their face seem innocuous, seem harmless, seem like uh, principles and ideas that yeah, every one of us can uh, latch on to and, uh, and have some sort of commonality about. But when you look at the justice that most uh, people are talking about, it's not a justice that is biblical. It is a justice that is biased. It is is a justice that is outcome-based. It is a justice that is not impartial. Um, uh, It it, it is a justice that reflects every single uh, attitude that is antithetical to what biblical justice is. When you look in Scripture, Bill, the word justice is inseparable from God's righteous character. So justice in Scripture means righteousness, okay? And again, you, if you want to know what righteousness is, you have to go back to Scripture and find that definition. Uh, but in many cases today, we're seeing justice, equality, fairness, equity being used in very subjective, very, uh, 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 shall we say, uh, I'm trying to search for the right words, but it's, 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 it's a justice that has more to do with, I, with what I think is right or an outcome that I want to see mm-hmm. happen. So what we're seeing, for instance, recently with the um, Derek Chauvin trial, um, um, the, the same as the case is, is uh, uh, as, as the uh, Breonna Taylor uh, situation plays out. Um, we have people in the church today who want to see a particular outcome. But if that outcome doesn't come to fruition, they'll say it wasn't injustice. 
Well, that's not the def- that's not how we're to understand justice uh, as Christians. Um, um, in the in the Derek Charlotte situation, I wasn't so much uh, focused on the verdict as I was did each side get due process? And it, it appears that each side did get due process. So in that situ- in, in that instance or in that context, justice was done. I, I really don't. I don't define justice in terms of outcome, and and, and nor should any any professing believer do that. We should not define justice in terms of outcomes. But was there equity involved? Did each side, the prosecution and the defense, get an opportunity to present their case fairly? Were there any violations of protocol? Were there any violations of the law? Did anyone have an advantage over the other side? No. So in that case, justice was done regardless of whether you like the outcome or not. Um, but it, even in, in instances where you didn't like the outcome, we have to understand as Christians what Paul's words are in First Timothy 5, verse 24, where Paul says, listen, in this world, the sins are going to follow some in this life. But then, then there are cases where their sins will follow after. So what Paul is saying in First Timothy 5, 24, that we're not always going to see God's justice carried out in this life. God and his sovereign providence has ordained that in certain situations, his justice will not be carried out until the next life. But we can guarantee we can be guaranteed as believers and rest in the fact that whether in this life or the next, God's righteous just, justice will be meted out. So we, we can take comfort in that. Mm, really good. Daryl, let me take a short break. When I come back, I've got a couple more questions for you, so don't go anywhere. Daryl B. Harrison is my guest. He is the Dean of Social Media at Grace to You. He is a Princeton Theological Seminary graduate and all-around wonderful guy. We'll be right back. to be back with Daryl Harrison. He is um, Dean of Social Media at Grace to You, which is in Southern California. He's got an amazing podcast called JustThinking.me. I encourage you to go hear it. It's uh, amazing. And he is um, a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. As we talk about equity versus equality, Daryl, you've got a line here in, in your blog I'd like for you to talk about a little bit more. You say, any concept of equality that is not fundamentally rooted in equity can never be regarded as justice. I know we were kind of talking about that before the break, but I'd love for you to say more. Yeah. So again, talk about the distinction between equity versus equality. We get equality when we judge everyone with equity. Okay, I want mm-hmm. to say that again. We get equality by judging everyone with equity. We get equality by not showing partiality. So as I said in the Bark article, any concept of justice that is not firmly re- rooted in the objective pursuit of equity. See, it's again, uh, hearkening back to the quote from John Calvin, where he said, equity must be the goal of all law. So what we want uh, as a church and a society in general what we should want anyway, is a society whereby the laws apply equally to every person without bias or partiality. That is equity by definition. 
Okay, but if you stray from that definition and you get to a point where the law doesn't apply impartially to every person, that's not justice. That can't be justice. You cannot have justice without first having equity. Equity being, again, the impartial application of God's objective truth to every image bearer of God. So the equality comes in by recognizing each person as an image bearer of God. And because they're an image bearer of God, you want to apply the law. You want to apply the principle, the precept, the the objective truth of God's word that applies universally, meaning applies to every person, every human being, because every human being is an image bearer of God. If If you veer off from that objective, impartial definition, you already have injustice, regardless of the outcome, because you haven't been uh, you haven't been impartial in your application of that principle or that law. Mm-hmm. Daryl, talk about the passage. I think it's in Acts that that says that God is no respecter of persons. How do you understand that? Well, I understand that to mean that God is pure, that God is holy, God is righteous. There is no defect in God by nature. Okay, scriptures tells us that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Uh, we should we should uh, rejoice at the fact that God is no respecter uh, of persons. Mean meaning that God doesn't show partiality to anyone. He's He's not biased towards or against anyone. Uh, he looks at each of His creatures, and we and we are uh, creations of God that bear His image. He looks at each of us. Um, without bias, without partiality, and as 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 as, uh, as image bearers of His, we can rest in the fact that God's uh, promises apply to each of us, but also um, His discipline applies apply to each of us equally as well. So, God's universal principle of reaping and sowing um, uh, is going to apply to each person to the extent that we submit to those precepts and principles, or we refuse to submit to those precepts and principles. Uh, so again, God is no part, uh, no, no respect of person, but we, I think we in the church, Bill, we kind of take that a little bit lightly because it gets more difficult for us to model that example because we're sinners. God is holy. God, there is no sin in God, but we, there is sin in us even after we're regenerate. So when we see uh, situations occur in society where we may think we have a vested interest in that situation, our feelings get involved, our situation gets involved, um, our environment gets involved, our experiences get involved. All of that creates a uh, bias within our heart and mind where we become respecters of persons, where we, we say to ourselves, well, I want to see this happen because dot, 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 or I don't want to see that happen because dot, 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 whereas we should reflect the nature and character of God in society so that uh, so that the unsaved world, the lost world, sees that we, like the God in whom we profess to believe, show no, are no respecters of persons as well. They see us reflecting that and imaging that in the world, and that draws them to God, uh, to, to, to the God who has regenerated our heart so that we show no bias towards others, just like he doesn't show bias towards people. Mm-hmm. Daryl, I liked what you said about, you know, did due process happen? And there was a listener that jumped in with this comment, and I would like for you to comment on this. He said, I might not feel 
like I got due process if there was a mob outside the courthouse every day threatening to burn down the city if I wasn't found guilty. Well, again, I don't think that's a, that's an issue with due process. Uh, again, what I think that example that's inherent to that question uh, actually proves my point about what true justice is. Um, especially, and again, I'm addressing believers here. Now, mm-hmm. we, I, I, I would expect unbelievers to form a mob outside a courthouse and threaten to burn down the city. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would expect that from unbelievers. But from believers, again, I'm going to turn again back to First Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, where, again, uh, we should be ruled, we meaning believers, we should be ruled by the Holy Spirit, not by our emotions or not by our feelings. So regardless of what someone may feel as a result of whether or not they got due process, again, unless any laws were violated, unless some protocol was violated, uh, we have to accept that due process was, due process was in fact, uh, accomplished, and we need to accept the outcome of that due process. Um, understand, even in the Old Testament, okay, even in the Old Testament, God, one of the laws that God gave to his people was that even if someone committed murder, they were not to be convicted or punished or, or, or sentenced to death on the testimony of only one witness. There had to be multiple witnesses in order for that outcome to come to fruition. So even God, again, this is just a reflection of his holiness and his righteousness. God was equally equally concerned, not just with the victim, but also with the accused. Mm-hmm. God wants the accused to receive justice as well. Uh, so again, when we, we, regardless of how you feel about a certain situation, we have to rest in the truth of 1 Timothy 5.24. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them into judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Again, God is going to punish some uh, offenders in this life, but there are going to be others who their punishment is going to come later. And if we profess to believe in Christ, if we truly are believers uh, whose hearts and minds are submitted to the truth of the gospel, we will accept that outcome and leave the further punishment to God as he has promised us in his word. Mm-hmm. Boy, Earl, you sure ended your blog on this topic beautifully. I'd like to just read your last sentence. Believers in Jesus Christ are to judge with equity and leave any consequences to an omniscient and omnipotent God who alone is sovereign over all outcomes. Yeah, that brings to mind uh, an encouragement and an exhortation that I want to leave your listeners with uh, in the time that we have remaining here, Bill, and that is to say this. Um, it's really easy to trust God until you have to trust Him, you see. <laughs> it's easy to trust God so until true. you have to trust Him. <laughs> mm-hmm. So w- the way I ended that article, I emphasized God's attributes of being omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign, okay? And we have to understand that God is all those things even when we see what we perceive to be injustice in the world. None of, these, none of these situations is happening outside the omniscient providence of God. Proverbs 15.3 Proverbs 15, says that God's eyes go about the earth seeing both the evil and the good. He sees a, Ecclesiastes 12 said God is going to bring every deed to judgment, whether it was good or evil. So we have to trust in the promises of God, even when we don't see God's justice and righteousness uh, uh, playing itself out in the world. Matter of fact, to be quite honest, 
according to Romans 8, we shouldn't expect to see God's justice meted out in this world, a world who the apostle, that the Apostle Paul said is, has been submitted by God to corruption. So again, this, this entire earth, this entire planet is populated by about 7 billion sinners. So we should expect to see injustices in the world. Mm-hmm. But when we do, we should not let go of the, the truth, the promise that God is sovereign over everything that occurs in his world. Daryl, you are having coffee with a good friend. That is just wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being with me today. Bill, thanks for inviting me back, my friend. Yeah. Love you, brother. Yeah, I love you too. Daryl Harrison has been my guest. Head over to justthinking.me. You can learn about his blog and his writing and his podcast that he does with Virgil Walker. That's justthinking.me. That wraps up our show. Thank you so much to everyone, all the guys that came in for Guide Talk, and my special guest, Daryl Harrison. I hope you have a lovely evening. I'm looking forward to our time tomorrow. As you lay your head on that pillow tonight, know that God is working on his great plan in your life, and he loves you, and I do too. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.